This is OPI Talk, the voice of the business products industry. Hello and welcome to this episode of OPI Talk. I'm your host, Steve Hilliard. On May 4th this year, US-based independent dealer Guernsey celebrates its 50th year in business. Throughout those five decades, the company's founder and CEO, David Guernsey, has been an influential leader in the independent dealer community, not just in North America, but worldwide. In this episode of OPI Talk, Dave chats about the trials and tribulations of being an independent dealer for 50 years, including the milestones, the highs and lows, the pandemic, the future of the IDC and the wider industry, and much more. So Dave, good morning. Welcome to OPI Talk. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Steve. It's great to be with you. So you have somewhat of a milestone to celebrate this year, I believe. I do. On May 4th, I will have completed the 50th year in business. I started it in 1971. And so on May 4th, as I said a moment ago, I end 50 years. I'm amazed that it's gone so quickly, a half a century. My goodness, I would have never expected that. Well, you know, I've been in the industry for well over 30 years and a lot of that time spent traveling to and from your country. And you've been a fixture of the industry for uh, as long as I can remember and probably as long as anyone in the industry can remember. Um, but but remind us, how did you get into the business? What, what did you do, if anything, before you uh, founded Guernsey? I was really quite fortunate. It was a stroke of luck, actually. I was working for Litton Industries. And there was a, my manager at the time indicated that he thought I was more entrepreneurial than I was fitted for a structural environment like the corporate environment. And he said, we have a franchise available. Would you be interested? And at the ripe age of 23, um, I went into business, took advantage of the franchise. And I've been doing this. Well, I wouldn't say the same thing because the industry has changed so much. It's been many different things over 50 years, but I'm still standing. So I mean, t- talk us through um, you know, some of the challenges. I too started a business in my early 20s. Um, you know, what were the, some of the challenges you faced? How did you resource the business? Steve, probably the challenge I faced most was my own I- ignorance. Uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. I had $234 solely to my name. And that's how I started the business. That's how I funded the beginning of the business with such a paltry sum. Uh, I did get a a loan from a local bank, a local banker who probably didn't have a lot of confidence in me, but nonetheless wrote me a loan for $1,300. So with that and the $234 I had, we were off and running. So uh, yeah, talk us through some of those, some early, early months and early years. Well, it was just me for a couple of years. I didn't have any resources to hire anybody else. So at the time, and not a lot of your viewers would remember this, but um, I actually was selling typewriters, the forerunner of the uh, of the computer keyboard today. And I was selling them and I had uh, uh, the ability to service them as well. So I did that for, I guess, probably close to two years. And then I hired the first person who, who started with me with the company. It was It was two years of grind, quite frankly. And I think... You have many, many folks that tune into you that started businesses themselves, probably started them on a shoestring, as did I, and they would relate to the, to the, to the grind, to the difficulty, to the fear. 
the risk that you're taking, that sort of thing. But it comes with the territory. It does, yeah. Making the payroll every month, that's a challenge a lot of us business owners are very familiar with. Indeed we are. It's too bad politicians weren't familiar with it as well. <laughs> so that was 50 years ago. Um, and are you able to share with me, you know, the business now as in terms of revenues and, and number of employees, just as a, a comparison, then we'll talk about the bit in the middle. Well, I wanna, I'll talk about 2019. I really would rather forget 2020 because <laughs> it's been quite a quite a hit. But we were we were north of 100 million dollars a year in revenues. We had 200, I think it was 240 employees. Wow, so that's uh, that's quite a journey. So you know, how have um, sales and how has the business uh, business uh, grown? What's been the trajectory of uh, of the organization over the course of those five decades? Well, there's been many changes, as you well know. Technology is, has influenced change in everybody's business. In ours, we went from typewriters to uh, word processing equipment to calculating equipment to copiers. And then ultimately, we had to make a decision about whether or not we were going to stay in the business machine side of it or go into the office product side of it. We did both for about, I guess it was six months to a year. And we decided that our balance sheet wasn't strong enough to do both. So we had to make a, make a decision as to which way we would go. And we chose the office products uh, direction. And that went quite well for many, many, many years. And I think probably the turn there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 19, I don't know, 85, something like that. You rebranded the business some while ago to just Guernsey. I believe before that it was called Guernsey Office Products. To, to what extent did that sort of signal a, a step change in you know how the business went to market and the types of products and services that you supplied? Went to a very, very large extent, quite frankly. We looked at, well, obviously, office supplies has been in secular decline for some period of time, and there's no end in sight as far as that's concerned. So we looked at, uh, in terms of being able to continue to grow our revenue, continue to grow our company. Uh, to continue to be viable as a competitor, we would need to go into workplace supplies, which is the way we characterize ourselves today. So we have a division related to janitorial and facilities. There's still one to office products, promotional products, break room products, and furniture. So those are all areas that feed the notion of workplace supplies. And that's who we are today. We're going to come on, hopefully, and talk about some of the industry changes and milestones that have happened but thinking about your own organization you know what, what have been the significant milestones and things that you reflect back on when you think about those 50 years in business probably in the uh, in the late 70s when we were i think jimmy carter was was president we had double digit inflation we had a double digit prime rate it was just a god awful uh, economic environment those were the days of of uh, lines to to get gas and and it was just a very dismal time in the American economy and and struggling through that was was interesting. We had uh, any number of challenges as we tried to maintain and to grow our our revenue base. We did very slightly during that period of time, but that was something I I'd rather not go through again. Although I feel like I'm going through it in a manner of speaking right now. Yeah, I think they call these things character building events, don't they? But um, I think I've uh, I've got enough character now. Sometimes you can look at it and, and find humor in it. Yeah, I, I'll give you an example. When I was uh, when I first decided to make a large expansion 
uh, into the office products area. I took out a very large loan. I got a new facility, and then I took out another large loan that funded a computer system that we were implementing. So I was doing both at the same time. And I remember one night thinking about the banker who helped fund this. I looked at it and I said, it's about 10 times my net worth. If I go under, they don't have a prayer. And it was just kind of comical to think that somebody would actually back me um, to that extent. But, you know, it worked for them, worked for me. Absolutely. Now, over the years, you know, as I said, you, you, you've become part of the furniture in this industry. And I mean that in a very good way. You know, your, your involvement has, um, has often stretched well beyond your own organization. I mean, I think the first time that you and I sort of met was at an OPI event. And um, not, not long after that, I think you were involved in um, the early formation of um, what was, what's now BPGI. So talk us through, you know, how important it is to be involved in, in, in the wider industry and, and just talk us through some of those key moments and, you know, key participations that you've had in this sector. Well, the formation of BPGI, that was, uh, I, I think the first real shock to the industry was when the public companies formed, uh, Staples, Office Depot. Uh, basically, prior to that, we were dealing with some rather large, but they were privately owned companies. And now we had publicly funded companies had they seemingly had an enormous amount of, of, of capital to put into their business. We'd never seen anything quite like that. And there was panic in the industry. There were a number of, of businesses that I think were very concerned. And then as we got from, let's see, that would have been the early night, very early 90s, um, when Staples and Depot, maybe even the late 80s. And then in, in the middle of, of the 90s, um, U.S. Office Products, Corporate Express, they were contract stationaries. They, too, were funded and they were making acquisitions left and right. And so it really became sort of a a matter of deciding whether or not you were going to stay in business or you were going to sell the business. I opted to stay. I knew a number of others that, that felt like they wanted to do that. It wasn't a matter of, of just selling your business. There, there were strategies that we might use, but we needed to band together. We needed to really knit the, the industry together. At the time in the IDC, there was, I don't know, probably six different groups, dealer groups that existed all of them basically doing the same thing. And from a buy side perspective, all buying from most of the time, the same manufacturers. And so BPGI was an endeavor initially to knit together all of the dealer groups in the United States. Then there were a couple of dealer groups in Canada that indicated they wanted to be a part of it. So we quickly morphed to a dealer group that would be <clears throat> North American. And then I got a call from, from a friend over in, in the UK who said that they were interested in what, they, what we were doing. It was very interesting because the folks in the UK were looking proactively at what was happening in the United States, and they wanted to make sure they had the right structure when it came to England, and it, of course, would and did. And so we then got together with those folks, uh, Hugh Sear and, and office team at the time, and then... Uh, we had a call from some folks in New Zealand and Australia, and that became BPGI. It was quite formidable, actually. We knitted together all of that buying power, and then we sat down with manufacturers and, and just simply indicated we would make commitments almost across the globe. And But in return, we expected programs that would allow us to be competitive against all these 
public organizations. And so it was a real sea change as far as the way the IDC uh, was able to work together. And we made tremendous strides. The interesting thing about BPGI was it quite literally was formed on the back of a, of a, of a paper napkin. I know that it's uh, in vogue to say that, but it actually happened that way. We just sort of structured it on the back. And then we had to open the napkin because we kept adding all these new organizations and new countries. Are you saddened that it sort of shrunk back down to being, you know, a, a European organization? It, it didn't become, it didn't morph into what it needed to be at the next level. And so the North American folks had to pull out. It, it, it became something different than what it was intended to be. And I frankly don't know what it is today. It still uses the same BPGI as an identifier, but um, they were going off on a different path. And so the North American groups decided to retrench and put something else together, which I don't think it was a bad thing necessarily. It was just they had one design and we over here had another. Talking about the North American groups, of course, you've been uh, a fixture for many, many years with uh, what was, I guess, Independent Stationers IS Group, now um, Independent Suppliers Group. Yeah, talk us about your, your various involvements with that organization. Well, I was uh, chairman of Independent Stationers, and shortly after my term ended, there was a move afoot for Independent Stationers to go into, effectively, the wholesaling business. And there was a in the in that grand design, there was a requirement that all the dealers had to participate in this program. It was not a program that was very meaningful for larger dealers. It actually penalized larger dealers. I remember pleading with the board of directors at the time to not attempt to force large dealers to utilize that program. Uh, that fell on deaf ears. And they went ahead with it. And so I, along with 10 other large independent stationer dealers, left. And we did a whiteboard exercise in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And the exercise was intended to, to literally start over. If we had a dealer group, what would it look like? If it was comprised of larger dealers, what, what should it look like? And so we drafted something together. And we were, at that point, going to... Um, to start a new dealer group. And then Trimega came to us and said, look, we want to adopt your idea and we'll add our larger dealers into the mix. And so that became Pinnacle, the, the Pinnacle group uh, within the Trimega organization. It was then renamed DSC. And it went on for a few years. Um, there were some issues there and we spun out and formed Pinnacle and attached it to independent stationers. The whole idea was to keep the buying power within the IDC, but by the same token, insulate larger dealers from the very structure of what uh, most dealer groups look like that, at that time, and still do for that matter. It's one dealer, one vote, whether you're doing $500,000 a year or $150 million a year. That structure with so few large dealers can really penalize the larger dealer community. So we we set it to the side, called it Pinnacle Affiliates, connected it to independent stationers, worked very closely with them. Yeah, I guess you, you look at it and you say, but we're all still doing the same thing. 
we're all still using the same, where there's many redundancies between Trimega and between IS Group and, and, and Pinnacle. And so we ultimately found a way to put it together, leveraged it, took, oh my goodness, several hundred thousand dollars worth of cost out of the model. And today, ISG, I think, is, is a very meaningful organization. It makes a lot of sense for independent dealers, be they large or very, or very small. Absolutely. I've got to ask you, in uh, all of the roles that you have played within the, the dealer group environment, did you ever imagine that the um, CEO of one of those dealer groups would be crazy enough to go and buy a $1.5 billion wholesaler in the middle of a global pandemic? Well... One of the things I think you learn about being in business for half a century is anything can happen. <laughs> anything can take place. They, I, I'm not sure much would surprise me. I've got a few surprises of my own yet to come, even after 50 years. So <laughs> I don't think I was really terribly surprised. It was a matter of can you get it funded? And if you can get it funded, you, you, you had a willing partner in, in uh, Genuine Parts. And you had a fellow who ran both Genuine Parts and S.B. Richards at one time, uh, Tom Gallagher, who I think was uh, very helpful in that particular effort. So with his help, with a willingness to spin out S.B. Richards and with financing, it was very doable. Getting back to uh, to you, um, you know, beyond BPGI and uh, an IS group, um, I think also you've had a term uh, working with NOPA, which of course is a much different organization than the NOPA I remember when I was getting started in uh, this industry and, and coming to your country for the first time. Yeah, I was uh, chairman of NOPA in, uh, I think it was 2000, 1999 or 2000. It was a very interesting time to be a part of their board and then ultimately to chair them because it was comprised of big boxes, corporate uh, contract stationers, and of independent dealers. It was started by independent dealers. It was built by independent dealers, but it now had this strange arrangement where they, they had very different agendas for what the group should do. So we, the, we had the opportunity to add folks to the board. Ultimately, we meaning the independent dealers. Uh, ultimately to gain control of the, the board vote-wise. And uh, quite literally, we expelled all of the big boxes. And it became fully an independent dealer community, dealer group again. And it continues today. It's I think its main purpose in, in life is advocacy. There's many, many threats on the horizon, whether they're at the local level or state level, or particularly at the federal level. And I think they're doing quite well. I, I really enjoy working with Mike Tucker. Um, I actually had the the honor of of hiring Paul Miller some number of years ago okay. when I was chair. And uh, of course, they, he's, they, he's celebrating twenty years, I think, at the moment. Twenty, 20 years in, in that role. Yep. Yep. Good man. So, yeah, I know you've also been involved locally in in um, in your region. Obviously, you're in the DC, Maryland area. You know, how important is that for an organization you know, of the type that Guernsey is to be involved in the local community? Oh, my goodness. I, I think it's absolutely critical. 
to, and to be visible, to be involved in uh, organizations like Chambers of Commerce. I'm, I've been the chairman of two here locally. I spent a lot of time working on committees, working on local projects like transportation issues and those sorts of things. Uh, being visible, being helpful, uh, you gain a good reputation in your organization. Today, I have many people in my company that are involved with those types of organizations. But you also have to be involved on the charitable fronts, um, whether it's something large like the United Way program or in our organization, in our Part of the world there's something called community uh, residences it's a small organization and and that's very important to be involved in that as well uh, so of course dave you've also been a you know big supporter um of um, city of hope on behalf of you know your own organization and also championing the independence to be more involved with city of hope you know what are your reflections on that well steve city of hope is near and dear to my heart uh, and i think you know, we've all had uh, family members, friends, teammates, even here in my in my company, um, that have had that dreaded disease, that cancer, and and City of Hope just does such marvelous work, such meaningful work. And it's not that there aren't other organizations like them doing this kind of work, but it's one that I've become very familiar with. So finding a, a time and and resources to help support their mission is a privilege quite frankly and they've been very helpful to some of the folks and family members that i have in my world that that have had uh, medical issues yeah so you and i have been fortunate enough many times to be on the tour out in california um this year of course the tour takes place about a month or so from now and is unable of course to, to go ahead uh, physically but they do have a virtual um, program plan. So I hope anyone listening to this podcast will consider um, joining that virtual tour of uh, the, the facilities in Duarte, Southern California. I think it's on 15th of June, um, because yeah, uh, like you said, this is fan fantastic work. You, you've mentioned obviously the big boxes on a couple of occasions um, and, you know, the various uh, product categories that um, have influenced your business over the years. What are the main you know, industry changes that you've witnessed that have, that have been defining moments um, and any sort of reflections on those now? Well, they're, they're economic in nature, quite frankly, when I think of really serious um, uh, issues that small businesses have had to go through. The, the 2008 economic uh, disaster 2008, 2009, 2010, the Great Depression, we call it here. That was quite something to, uh, to deal with. Um, I've, over 50 years, I've been through many economic downturns. They're all difficult, particularly on small businesses. Um, the one in, in 08 and for the few years thereafter was as deep as anything I could have ever imagined. Um, very, very difficult. I, I know I had many peers that just decided to close their business because, quite frankly, I think they looked at it and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this another time. Um, I've been through several and I'm not going to do this another time. And then the pandemic hit. And I, I, we, we forecast economic downturns in our company, not with any kind of precision whatsoever, but we know they're coming. And we squirrel away resources to, to survive them, but we never forecast a pandemic. Uh, we never really thought 
I think it was what 2000 and, or 1918 when the Spanish uh, flu pandemic came in. Um, we didn't even bother to look at something like that. I guess we never even thought something like that would occur in in, in uh, 2020. But those were events that that really made it difficult for all businesses and particularly small businesses to survive. Business is a sort of a learning curve for us all, no matter how old we are. And what would you say you've learned throughout the course of the last fifteen months or so? Well, I've 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 learned the value of my balance sheet, and and if I could impart anything to the younger, newer people in the in the business, I would tell them rapidly build your your balance sheet. Don't enjoy the profitability of the business and and take it off personally and do whatever you might do with it, but instead invest it back in the business. I mentioned earlier, Steve, I started with $234. That's woefully undercapitalized. Even 50 years ago, that was woefully undercapitalized. When we came into the pandemic, the Guernsey organization had an extremely strong balance sheet. And that's been uh, that's been necessary, quite frankly. And then the government weighing in with the what they call PPP, those those loans that could be forgiven if you qualify uh, are very helpful as well. So the you know, when we got probably a month or two into the uh, pandemic, probably the April time frame, my team and I, we looked at the Guernsey organization and said it's time to manage the balance sheet and not worry about the P&L. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been doing for the last the last 20 months. And I, I frankly think we're going to come out of this stronger than we were when we went into it. Do you think the same can be said of your peers, competitors, um, the entire industry as a whole in North America? I hope so. I, I, I hope so. Even the competitors that I have to go up against uh, in the IDC, because the, the resources of the large public companies it's much easier for them to cope with this than smaller businesses. So I, I certainly hope that folks, when I've, when I've spoken with dealers, I mean, this is a very simple something, but, and they'll say, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm reducing inventory and I'm turning it into cash. I'm not replacing that inventory, turning it into cash. Well, I guess I was going to ask you, my next, my next question was going to be, um, you know, can you contrast the industry in the 1970s versus it is today. And I guess the one, one big thing was you didn't have a, a cell phone constantly ringing uh, and emails constantly pinging uh, 50 years ago. Well, technology is, is, I guess, our friend and at times our enemy. It's prompted monumental change in the way this business, not just consumer preferences, the decline of office products, the disappearance of typewriters, those types of things. Um, technology drove all of that either by process or by new equipment. It's it's interesting. My assistant, my executive assistant, Kathy Jesmer, she's been with me 43 years. And there used to be a time when I might ask her to type several letters in the course of a week. That never happens now. It never takes place. And it, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. When you look back on how much all of this has changed in, I don't know, maybe in 50 years, it's supposed to change this much. But sometimes it's a little overwhelming, I think, to all of us that are dealing with it. Yeah. So what's the future look like? You know, um, 50 years in business, 
coming hopefully towards the back end of a global pandemic. The industry was already challenged, uh, I think, to put it put it bluntly. You know, what does the future look like for the office products industry? What's the future for the independent dealer community in the months and years ahead? Well, I think one of the things we have to get away from is characterizing ourselves as the office products community. We're the business products community. You're either in it with technology and business products or with consumables in business products, or maybe perhaps a little bit of both when you throw the furniture aspect into it. But that's the industry that we're in today. And in fact, if if you're only in office products, you're slowly disappearing, whether you realize it or not. And so embracing these new categories, these adjacencies is absolutely critical, being able to to finance um, all that's required with that. And and the good thing about it is, Steve, this this goes on. What we sell, what we make available to customers, the way in which we do it, it'll continue to be in demand. And our job will be to continue to carve out a sufficient demand to run a healthy business. I don't see that opportunity slipping away. It's still there. And it's there for the next generation. And in my particular case, I won't be doing this for a lot longer, but I have a number of young people who we are grooming to fill positions. Actually, our senior management team, uh, all but one of them are uh, well into their 60s. So we're going to have a wholesale change in the in the currency organization, but we have young people to replace us. And I think, frankly, they're, they're more talented than we are. Well, that would that would take something. So, you know, that was really my last question. What is the future of Guernsey? You've um, you've said that you won't be doing this for much longer. You know, what's your what's your runway to retirement look like now? Well, I, I got I got a couple of large initiatives. One that'll be announced soon. Another acquisition. That's uh, probably in a month or so. We'll announce that, um, and we'll integrate that organization into into Guernsey. And then we have a an even more daunting endeavor on the table. And I don't know whether it'll materialize or not, but it'll be a lot of fun trying to make it happen. And so I'll be here, I suppose, through the end of the year. And then after that, I intend to ski a lot more and sail a lot more and and uh, do a lot less of this. Well, I intend to come and see you when you're skiing a lot more because... Uh... We've, we've missed that opportunity here in Europe this year. What, what about family involvement? Savannah was um, constantly by your side for a brief period at industry events. And will we see her return to the business? Yeah, I think that was probably one of the more fun years in this business. She was here for three years, right out of, out of college. While she was working here, she got her graduate degree or MBA. And then she went to Ernst & Young where she's a consultant. She's up in New York now, and she's been there, gosh, I guess it's close to two years. So you, you might imagine what my hopes would be. She's highly qualified. She's a very intelligent young woman, very well educated. I, I would hope that perhaps she might consider coming back into the company. But, you know, as a parent, and you can certainly relate to this, it's it's whatever she does that makes her happy is what her mom and I want for her. But who knows? Absolutely. 
Well, I'm sure uh, whatever she decides, it will be, uh, be, the, be the right decision. Dave, you have been a tremendous contributor to this industry for five decades, a uh, tremendous contributor to OPI for the 30 years that, uh, that we've been going. So I want to thank you for, for that. And um, you know, thank you for your uh, friendship, your industry leadership. And thank you for talking to us as we you know, join you in celebrating uh, a monumental achievement. I've really enjoyed the session, Steve. Thank you. And, and, and my appreciation to what OPI does, you've shined a spotlight on this industry. And in particular, particularly during your years, you shined a spotlight and continue to do so on the independent dealer. And I think that's absolutely critical that the independent dealer gets some visibility in the broader industry. And were it not for OPI, frankly, I don't think that would have happened. So thank you. Thank you, Dave. I look forward to seeing you soon. Very soon. Take care, Steve. Thank you for listening to this episode of OPI Talk. Please join us again next week for another show. In the meantime, though, as always, you can keep up to date with all the latest news and developments in the business products industry via our website, opi.net, or on the brilliantly simple OPI app. Just search for OPI Magazine in the App Store or on Google Play.